Daniel Ryan Day begins the conversation on this episode of the Discover the Word podcast with kind of a personal question for the group. What was your relationship like with your mom? Was it positive, negative? Are you willing to share? It's okay if you're not, because not for all of us is it positive. And I want to acknowledge that. But if you're up for it, share a little bit about who your mom was and your relationship with her. And so we'll hear how Mark DeHaan and Lisa Morgan and Bill Crowder respond to that. And then Daniel will tell us why he asked that question. The reason we're talking about this is because, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about God being our father. But there are a few places in the Bible where God is described in motherly terms or even describes himself in motherly terms, which I think is interesting. And I thought it might be fun for us to spend a series looking through some of the places in Scripture where God describes himself in more motherly terms. Yeah, the mother side of God. That's our study on this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. And it is good to have you here at the table at the front end of another hour of studying the Bible together on Discover the Word. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. So our study this time is called The Mother Side of God. As Daniel said, the Bible attributes what the writers often viewed as motherly characteristics to God. And so we're going to look at a few of those passages, and uh, what we'd like you to do is keep this question in mind as you listen to the discussions. And the question is this, How does God being like a good mother help us to get a sense for who God is and what God does and how God relates to us and how we relate to him? All right, keep that in mind. So let's get started and have Daniel ask the group his opening question again, and then we'll hear the responses. What was your relationship like with your mom? Was it positive, negative? Are you willing to share? It's okay if you're not, because... Not for all of us is it positive, and I want to acknowledge that. But if you're up for it, share a little bit about who your mom was and your relationship with her. You know, my relationship with my mom was a lot different than my relationship with my dad, Mm. and yet they were both positive. I just remember both of them with great affection. But my mom could talk about issues and relationships and emotions and whether I was happy or not. My dad was great on the golf course. He was great in the fishing <laughs> boat, you know? <laughs> and uh, he would express love to me, but it was very different than my mom's. Yeah. I had a really good relationship with my mom. She was very supportive and encouraging. She was a member of the first church that I pastored and was always a really good sounding board after a service to give me feedback on the Mm -hmm. message because she had very good insight but also had a good sense of detail Mm -hmm. and when i started writing i would always send drafts out to her to read and she would catch all the missing links and logic and stuff that i had done so she passed away a couple of years ago and Mm -hmm. and i've really missed her continuing Uh influence I've loved hearing both of you talking about your moms over the years. It's been precious. My relationship with my mom was, I guess I'd use the word complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, she loved me and I loved her. 
but it was messy. She was a single mom. We were in a divorced family. She wasn't raised in a world where women were expected to work, but she was a career woman too. And and just for me and my own identity, um, over the years, I've realized I'm a lot like her, but you don't want to be like your mom mm. in some ways when you're growing up. <laughs> the other thing is that she died when I was only 34. And I always feel like I didn't get finished. You know, I was doing that whole growing up, separating, individuating, who am I, who is she? She struggled with alcohol and was probably too dependent upon me to take care of things. And I just feel like I didn't get finished. But the Lord still speaks to me about her. Even though she's been gone over 30 years, he still teaches me about her. Mm. And I'm grateful that I've learned that even though she's not here with me, God still is using her in my life. That's good. What about you, Daniel? Yeah, first of all, Lisa, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, for me, my mom was one of those that I had a pretty close relationship with. And I remember in particular after I could drive, being a typical teenager, I would be out late with friends or whatever, doing good things. Uh, (laughs) But when I would get home, almost every time she was waiting up just to hear how my day had been and things like that, which were always some pretty special times. Nice. Because I knew she was tired, but she wanted to hear how my day was and connect with me Mm. before I went to bed. So it was pretty special. Uh, And, you know, it's funny when you grow up in a situation like that, you assume that like, oh, all moms must be like that. But then as I've grown up, I've met more and more people that had very opposite relationships with their moms where, you know, we talk a lot about father wounds in culture. Well, they have very real mother wounds. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that. And so, um, Elisa, thank you for sharing very vulnerably Mm. with us in that way, too. Mm -hmm. The reason we're talking about this is because, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about God being our father. But there are a few places in the Bible where God is described in motherly terms or even describes himself in motherly terms, which I think is interesting. And I thought it might be fun for us to spend a series looking through some of the places in scripture where God describes himself in more motherly terms. So as we do, maybe keep in mind, how does God being like a mother help us get a sense of who God is or what God does or how he relates to us? Uh, Mm -hmm. And it might be helpful just to kind of jump straight in and see one of those passages. Mm -hmm. So Isaiah 49, 15, uh, and we're actually going to start our first two conversations with the book of Isaiah. If somebody would read Isaiah 49, 15 for us, and then we'll jump into the context and talk about it. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Hmm. What a cool verse. It might be helpful to think about the context a little bit before we jump into talking about the verse itself. So the book of Isaiah, as I was doing some research on it, is often divided into two major sections. In the first section, so chapters 1 through 39, in many ways it's described as a book of judgment. And then in the second half, uh, chapters 40 through 66, it's often described as a book of hope. And so we have judgment and hope being held in tension together throughout the book of Isaiah. And of course, those themes show up in the other sections, right? So judgment shows up at the, in the second half, hope shows up in the first half. But if we just look at the book of Isaiah with kind of a broad stroke, we see those two themes. Now, for me as a millennial, the word judgment 
what shall I say, uh, doesn't have a positive <laughs> connotation. Well, for me as a boomer, it <laughs> so, doesn't either, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> and so it might be worth just spending a little time talking about the term judgment in the Bible. It's not always a negative thing. In fact, the word to judge just means to look at something and to form an opinion about it or a conclusion about it. And so there's times in the Bible where God looks at things and says that's very, very good, like at the beginning of the world. So God is judging his creation that he's making as good, good, very good. Mm -hmm. And then there are other times where God is looking at things like maybe some of the thoughts or motives of his people and determining that they're acting in self-destructive ways or ways that are painful for others, going against the very fabric of the way God made the world to work. What are some of the ways that we see that in the Bible where people are acting in self-destructive ways or ways that are harmful mm. to others? Well, you see it in Genesis chapter 6, mm. which is then followed by the event of the flood mm -hmm. uh, where there's a lot of stuff going on. And it says all of the thoughts of people's hearts were only evil all the time. I mean, there's a lot of comprehensive statements packed into that verse. Mm -hmm. And the result is a consequence to those actions, which is the flood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think about the exile to Babylon, you know, that where the whole nation was exiled and punished. And I'm using air quotes here, you know, mm -hmm. so, and then you go into the New Testament and Jesus's own words towards the religious leaders who were making walking with God much harder than God intended it to be. Yeah. 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 Jesus talks a lot about judgment mm -hmm. in those different ways, Daniel, that you're talking about. He says, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for judgment, I've come into this world. And then with the idea that he'll cause the blind to see and those who think that they can see to expose that they're blind. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like bringing to light yeah. what people need. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe one of the reasons you said at the beginning, Daniel, that as a millennial, judgment is an uncomfortable word for you. And I think that maybe there's a difference between judgment as you defined it in making a decision about something and an act of judgment mm -hmm. or discipline or whatever, yeah. where we see a response to the decision that's made about something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the book of Isaiah, God draws attention to a few things in particular that he sees as self-destructive or harmful to others, especially in this first section. The people are supposed to be caring for the poor, but often they exploit the poor instead. They're supposed to look after the vulnerable but often they neglect the most vulnerable, and that's the orphan, the widow, the stranger. They have the collection of instructions, the Torah, for what justice looks like in their time and place in history, but they often act unjustly and without mercy for others. And so throughout this first section of Isaiah, God's really kind of putting his finger on these things that are harmful, not only for the people that are doing them, but for those that are around them and for the world itself. But there's also this glimmer of hope in the first section, and it is that God's going to do something about this, this lack of justice, this lack of peace, this lack of love, and begins to whisper at this coming hope for Israel that's going to be a suffering servant, which is really the theme of hope in the second half of Isaiah. And we see kind of this turn at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Does somebody have that for us where you they could read that real quick. This is where we see that movement from judgment or negative things to more of hope. So Isaiah 40, verse 1. I've got it here. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Yeah, so 
we have this idea of comfort, this idea of something is changing, that God is coming in some way. But what's interesting is the people pretty quickly respond to God saying, I'm going to comfort you. And if we look at verse 49, 14, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. Comfort. What do you mean comfort? You've forsaken me. You've forgotten me. And the reason they feel that way is because they're just coming out of the exile at this point. So they saw their families killed, their friends killed, their culture destroyed, their city taken from them. They've been taken away from their home to a different place. And so their honest response to God saying, I want to comfort you is, what do you mean comfort us? We feel forsaken Mm -hmm. by you. Have you ever been in a place where you have a similar feeling toward God or toward the circumstances in your life? Yeah, all of us have. Um, (laughs) And that's where we get to this verse where God first mentions his motherly approach to us and specifically to his people Israel at this point. So would somebody read Isaiah 49, 15 to us again? So this is right after the people have said, Actually, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And this is how God responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. When I was reading through this passage and thinking about it, the first thing that came to mind is the times that I've heard either my wife say to my kids or when my mom used to say to me things like, I know you're mine because I know where you came from. You came out of me, right? And so I get this sense from this verse of God saying something similar, which is, can a mom forget her nursing child or the child that came from her womb? You know what? That's a pretty unreasonable thing that a mom would forget her child. But even if they do, I would never forget you. How does that strike you? You know, one thing, Daniel, in this text, does it actually say that God is like a mother or that there's a mother side of God? No, it doesn't say clearly God is a mother or like a mother. In fact, in this series, in some ways, you could say this is the weakest link between God and the mother side of God of all the other (laughs) verses that we'll look at, because we're going to look at several throughout this series. But what we do see here is we have the people of Israel feeling absolutely forsaken and forgotten by God. And God's response to them in their honesty is, let me give you a picture. Think about a mother, the most loving mother you can think of, a mother who nurses her child. Could a mother who nurses her child or who carried this child for nine months and then give birth, could she ever really forget about her child? Well, even if she could, I would never forget you. And so that's where we see God kind of connecting his love and affection to that of a mother who has nursed and cared for a child. And in that way, clearly communicating to Israel, no, I could never forget you. That would be impossible for me. He's so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And just a little tension. I think we can romanticize mothers. Human mothers actually can forget a nursing Mm -hmm. child. We actually can distance ourselves. It seems impossible, but there are very difficult situations where that actually occurs in a mother's heart. And maybe God's saying, even if that did happen in Mm -hmm. really painful circumstances, even I will not forsake you. Which is really good news for anybody who has been forgotten by their mom. And just to mention there too, you know, for women who haven't given birth 
or who have children through adoption or who people who've been adopted. Uh, and, you know, I, I love how Jesus swoops us together into God's family, especially in the New Testament, you know, referring to us all as his children. So even if we're not biologically connected, mm-hmm. we still we still belong. And if we think about just with how difficult life can be, it was very difficult for Israel in this context of hearing these words from God. The amount of pain that we experience, it's natural for us to ask questions like, God, have you forgotten about me? Mm-hmm. And I hope that what we hear in this and then throughout this series is that God meets us in a very special and unique way to show us that, no, I haven't forgotten about you. What is a heroic thing that your mom did for you? Or maybe you've heard of another mom who did a heroic thing for a child. Well, I think when you use the term heroic thing, it almost wants it to be something really big and dramatic. And I'm not sure that that's necessary. I think with my mom, I couldn't identify some giant, big, overwhelming moment where she did something over the top for me. But she did stuff for me my whole life that Mm -hmm. I think to some degree took courage and took grace and took strength for her to be able to do those things. So I think it's a lot more ordinary than heroic, but maybe that's what makes it heroic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to myself here, which is so inappropriate, (laughs) but I remember when my daughter was about seven and she came to my bedside in the middle of the night and said, mom, I don't feel good. And suddenly she erupted and I reached out my hands to catch Uh what she erupted with. And I thought, what am I doing? (laughs) But it was just instinctive. Mm Gosh. You were trying to protect the bedspread, you know? Yes, the carpet. That was all about my carpet. You're right. And I wish I could say that my mom stood up for me and took on the neighborhood to protect me when I was right and they were wrong. But, you know, I can't think, Daniel, of anything like that. I think all women are heroic in bringing us into the world. Yeah, yeah. true. That is exactly right. I'm actually very similar. So when I think of even the term heroic, I think of the everyday ordinary things that my mom did consistently and over and over and over again. For her, we were in a situation that I know is very blessed, but she was able to put her career aside for a while and just be home with Mm. us as kids. And so that's very heroic for her to do that. She had dreams and Mm. yeah, Mm -hmm. she put those on the side for a little while or making food that I liked there's no way she liked all the same things that I liked, right? <laughs> but she often would make food that she knew that I cared about or just even the countless hours that she would spend in cars or taking us places or whatever. Those are the everyday heroic mm-hmm. things that I think of when I think of my mom. You know, when a mother even corrects a child and knows that child's going to be angry with her, yeah. you know? You can say, I hate you for, I mean, no mother likes to have the rejection of a child, even in a moment, I don't think. Do you, Elisa? No, no way. And I'm actually thinking of an illustration I've shared before that my parents were divorced. But when I think about the heroism of my mom, she refused to say anything negative about my father to me Ah. or the rest (laughs) of us. She Ah. chose the high road. And I think that was heroic because he had some foibles, if you will, you know, Mm -hmm. but she chose not to pollute our understanding of him. That's good. It sounds like we're really drawing a straight line from heroic to self-sacrificing. Yeah. And I think all of us can agree that any example of true self-sacrifice requires a certain amount of courage and heroic spirit. 
That's it really good, does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And just like we acknowledged in our last conversation, it's important to acknowledge that all that we're talking about might be the opposite for others who, when they think about their mom, they do not think of heroism or self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. If anything, mm-hmm. it's the opposite. They felt like mm-hmm. they were in the way or they felt like their mom had her own agenda their whole life and never cared for them or, mm-hmm. or yeah. something like that. And it's important to acknowledge that that hurt and pain there is as well. Right. Even just mentioning the word mother. Some people had mothers that were just mean people, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is really hard. But I hope that even those of us who have very painful experiences with mothers can bring that tension and that pain with us as we continue to talk about God describing himself sometimes in the scriptures with motherly characteristics or the mother side of God. And we'll see that even more clearly in this conversation in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13. And let's read that verse and then we'll talk about the context together. Isaiah 66, 13. Bill, will you read that for us? As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. As a mother comforts her child, I will comfort you. In our last conversation, we mentioned how the book of Isaiah kind of takes a turn halfway through, and we see this verse, comfort, I will comfort, God saying those words. And then we see that here at the very end of Isaiah, God saying that he's going to comfort his people as well. And in this particular context, he says, just like a mother comforts a child, I will comfort you. Now, as we were describing the book of Isaiah, we talked about how the first part is kind of a a book of judgment. And the second part is a book of hope. And specifically, what is the hope that begins to be described in the second half of Isaiah? Well, as you said in our first conversation, Daniel, there's hope in the judgment part and there's judgment in the hope part. Mm -hmm. And so the hope of the second part of Isaiah is also the hope of the first part of Isaiah, and that's the promised Messiah. Yeah. Because we see him throughout the book of Isaiah. So the exile has ended in this part of the story for Israel. So they're coming back into Jerusalem, coming back into the promised land. But what we discover in not just Isaiah, but in other prophets as well, is they haven't actually changed. They still have hard hearts. Mm -hmm. They're still not loving and kind or merciful and just like God wants all of us to be. And so he begins to describe this hope, the servant or the suffering servant of Isaiah that will come and that will be God's light uh, to the nations that will be rejected and killed. We see that in chapter 50, chapter 52, chapter 53. The suffering servant is going to be rejected and killed, but who will also rise again. And somehow through all of that will begin to bring reconciliation, bring comfort to the world. Where do you get that idea of rising again? Yeah, so it's just a little hint And it's in chapter 53, verse 11, and I'll read it for us. It says, out of his anguish, he shall see light. Mm -hmm. And so it's this passage is describing the suffering, the death, the rejection of the suffering servant. And then it has this little glimmer of hope that out of his anguish, out of his suffering, death and rejection, he will see light. Mm -hmm. So it kind of lifts the story up. Of course, we don't get the full picture of that until we see Jesus and see him rise again in the story. And so that's this hope that's being described. 
And the place that this hope is most described is in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 10 through 14. And this is where we'll see a lot of motherly language in particular. So let's read that together. Elisa, could you read that for us? Sure. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom. For thus says the Lord, I will extend prosperity to her like a river, and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So a really beautiful passage of scripture with a lot of metaphor (laughs) happening here. (laughs) And what's interesting is this motherly figure or motherly characteristics is actually described as two different things in this passage. So who's the first motherly figure that's described? Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem. And Mm -hmm. so as we talked about in our last conversation, Jerusalem was supposed to be this place of justice and mercy and love and caring for the poor, caring for the most vulnerable, but it often had been the opposite. It had been a, a place of evil, destruction, exploitation, injustice. So it would be a place where an infant would not feel cared for, but quite vulnerable and not Mm. cared for. And so it's going to go from a place of injustice and exploitation to a place where it feels like you're an infant drinking milk and protection and comfort on your mother's Mm. breast. That's this contrast that's going to happen. I think it's interesting, Daniel, that when Elisa was reading those and she got to verse 12, she read, thus says the Lord, behold, I extend prosperity to her like a river. My translation says I extend peace. Hmm. And again, Hmm. the two may have a relationship, but they're very different ideas. And comfort to me feels more like peace than it does prosperity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet that concept of prosperity, I, I pictured the milk flowing, you yeah, know, at right. the breast, which creates peace, you know, so yeah. 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 And there's three characteristics in particular that this motherly figure of Jerusalem has. She's a nurse, so she's feeding and her children are finding satisfaction She carries her children, so she's helping them along. She's protecting them. She dandles them, which I didn't know what that word meant (laughs) until I read it in the New Revised Standard Version. And so I looked it up, and I think this might have become one of my favorite words. It means to move a baby or young child up and down in a playful or affectionate way. So we have nursing, we have carrying the child, and then we have this joy and affection Mm. that this mother feels for her child. And it's right after that description that God says what? As one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you. Yeah. So all this beautiful caring for a child that I've just described that Jerusalem is going to represent, I'm that too for you. I'm the mother who nurses, who provides and helps you find satisfaction. I'm the mother who carries you, who helps you along, who protects you. I'm like a mother who dandles you on my knee and Mm -hmm. is so full of joy and affection Mm -hmm. for you that it brings joy to me. What a beautiful picture of God, isn't it? It really is. And it must reflect the influence of this Messiah that you were saying Mm -hmm. they've been anticipating. Mm -hmm. And if the Messiah, we look back now and say, well, this was God coming to his people. 
then all of that is wrapped up in this image of a mother caring for the children. And it's probably worth acknowledging here, too, that for some of us, it actually wasn't our mother that represented these characteristics. It was our father who represented yeah. one who Happy. fed us mm-hmm. or provided satisfaction for us mm-hmm. or who protected us or who dandled us on his knee. Mm-hmm. But again, it's just within this picture of, of these motherly characteristics. I was thinking, too, I've never heard of a father saying to the child, you know, like your mom has taken care of you and nursed you and affected you. Yeah. I'm going to take care of you like that. I mean, that would be a beautiful thing, but mm-hmm. that's kind of what God is doing here, right? Yeah. He's taking the other side. Yep. Well, he's like beyond gender, and this is what blows our head. You know, yeah. we're like, you know, we don't know what to do with this, but he's able to slide into either yeah. role to connect with us where we are. Yeah. Here I am, the only girl in this conversation, <laughs> but I love reading scriptures and there's so many of them, honestly, where God does describe himself with feminine qualities. And I connect with that immediately. It's not a surprise to me at all, but I'm sure it is to many. Yeah. And in our conversation, we started by talking about the connection between the heroism of motherhood with self-sacrifice. And Mm -hmm. Mart, to the point you mentioned just a minute ago, all of this comes out of this suffering servant who is laying down his life for Israel. And so we see that even here that God, yes, he nurses and he carries and he dandles us on his knee. But ultimately, his love is so strong for us that he even lays down his life for us to draw us close to him and to have a deep relationship with him. God uses this beautiful picture of a loving mother to describe his love and care for his people. And uh, did you learn a new word there in that session? Uh, Next time you're dandling one of your kids or grandkids or any little one you're close to, I hope you'll think about that description of how God feels about you. This is the Discover the Word podcast, and you're exploring the mother side of God, with your study partners, Daniel Ryan Day, Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder. And when they continue, they'll add another motherly dimension to our (laughs) metaphor. (laughs) So today, as we continue this conversation on the mother side of God, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at some of these passages where God is describing himself in motherly terms, but also as a bird. (laughs) Okay, a motherly bird. But first, a word about another Our Daily Bread podcast that Elisa is part of, a podcast for women called God Hears Her. I'm Elisa Morgan. And I'm Erin Eddy. And we are your hosts of the podcast God Hears Her. And we're curious, do you find yourself seeking community and wanting to hear stories that you can relate to? Do you seek a place where you feel heard and seen and loved? The mission of God Hears Her is to make you feel seen, heard, and loved by God through our conversations on the show. We've had many guests share their experiences with us, like Ellie Holcomb, Vivian Mabuni, and Tony Collier. My power is made perfect in your weakness, but it's the response that we get to have to that truth. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power will rest on me. We've also had many people talk with us about topics ranging from mental health, unexpected life situations, marriage, and parenting. And we'd love to go deeper with each other. Every conversation is God-led and impactful. 
What I really, really learned with my brother was it wasn't about the amount of time that you had on the earth, but it was the amount of people that you impacted in that time. Because we had hundreds of people show up to his funeral because they were like, I was so impacted and he couldn't even speak. I think that people can hear a conversation like this and they can say like, oh, she's a saint. Oh, that's so different from me. Or, oh, thank God, God hasn't called me to that. We're adding lots of new content. Recently, we did a Q&A and we had our special 100th episode. There's so much more to look forward to that's coming. Take a look at our episodes and join us for more. Our podcast is available anywhere you can get your podcasts. Make sure to follow the show so you don't miss any episodes. And remember, you are seen, heard, and loved by our God. And now back to the mother side of God on the Discover the Word podcast. Fun question to start off this conversation. What are some of the weirdest metaphors for God that you've come across in the Bible? I can start because it might take you a second to think about, and this is going to be one of the ones we talk about today. But for me, one of the weirdest ones is God is a mother bird. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that more as we go. But before we jump into that, what are some of the weirdest metaphors for God that you can think of in the Bible? For me, most of the ones that I think of when you ask the question, I don't know if they're really weird, but they kind of feel weird to me, are the really, really impersonal ones like God is a rock or God (laughs) is a shield or, or something. I was studying Psalm 23 once, and one of the commentaries I studied brought out how different it is that Psalm 23 uses the metaphor of a shepherd, which is intensely personal, and so many of the metaphors aren't. And so I guess because I really gravitate toward that very personal shepherd metaphor, it's those really impersonal ones that feel strange to me. Yeah, inanimate almost. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't sound very motherly like when God describes himself like a fire, you know, or when Mm -hmm. he reveals himself Mm -hmm. in fiery Mm -hmm. terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we could probably stop this conversation just here and it would be freeing for a lot of people because we often get so used to talking about the Bible and verses and all that that we don't sometimes pause just to acknowledge how weird sometimes the things that we say (laughs) sound like God is a rock or God is Mm -hmm. bread or God is a fire, especially for those of us that have been Christians a long time or reading the Bible a long time we kind of forget how weird some of these things are. And one of those for me is in the passage that we're going to look at today, actually quite a few passages where God is described as a motherly bird. And it reminded me immediately of a children's book. I used to read my kids called, Are You My Mother? Right? Yep, yep. And mm-hmm. so you have this little baby bird going around and he sees like a tractor. It's like, are you my mother? And mm-hmm. no, the tractor's not the mother or other animals. And finally at the end, he, fi- he finds his mother. She finds her mother. So today as we continue this conversation on the mother side of God, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at some of these passages where God is describing himself in motherly terms, but also as a bird. And we see that <laughs> clearly in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 13. And so if somebody could read that for us, while they do, I'll, I'll add just a little more context for where this conversation is going to go. One of the cool things about Deuteronomy 32, uh, which is this song of Moses as he's kind of sharing with Israel at the very end of his life, is threads from Deuteronomy 32 of God describing himself as like a mother bird show up throughout the Psalms 
and they seem to be kind of picking up on this Deuteronomy 32 language. So what we're going to do today is not just read Deuteronomy 32, but as we talk about these pieces of Deuteronomy 32, we'll throw in some Psalms that I think might build off of Deuteronomy 32. That's enough talking though. So Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 13, if somebody could read that for us. I've got it here. In a desert land, he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag. Yeah, so we have this picture of God describing himself as an eagle who's taking care of its kids. Now, at first, you might be wondering, is this a male eagle or a female eagle? Because that's not really Mm -hmm. clear in it. Mm -hmm. But I think as we see it taking care of its young, and specifically, Mart, your translation said nourished, but there's a word, he nursed him with honey from the crags. It seems like this seems to be a motherly eagle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He nursed him, though, Daniel? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. That's wow. the fun of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the context here for Deuteronomy 32? Well, it's toward the end of Moses' life. Israel has been in the wilderness for a generation now. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of getting to the end of Deuteronomy where before the people enter the land of promise, Moses kind of rehearses the law of Sinai for a new generation to commit to as they get ready to go into the promised land. And when Moses is describing the type of God that is going with them, this is where he describes God in these terms of like a mother eagle. And we see some different characteristics of the way that God interacts with his people described in this passage. The first one is that it shields and guards the people. So what I see in that is like protection from the elements or from predators. And earlier on, I mentioned how often the Psalms, I think, are picking up on Deuteronomy 32 and their descriptions of God. Could somebody read Psalm 57, 1? And I think we'll hear this shield and guardedness mm. related to God as a motherly bird. <laughs> sure, I've got that. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. Yeah, so that phrase, in the shadow of your wings, I will find protection or refuge. So we have protection there, a hint of mercy, of God providing favor, not because it's deserved, but because of his protection as a mother eagle-like character. In fact, in Isaiah 31.5, it also describes God as a whole flock of birds protecting his people. Or in Psalm 91, which is one of the most common Psalms people think about when they think of the shadow of God's wings, it's a place of protection and deliverance under God's wings. And so as we think about this God as a motherly eagle, one of the first things that we see in this passage is God's protection or his his shielding of his people. Another characteristic is that he cares for his people. And a psalm that kind of builds off this theme here in Deuteronomy 32 is Psalm 36, 7. Bill, could you read that for us? Sure. 
Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I'm guessing that that phrase steadfast love is chesed. Yeah, so it's God's loyal, faithful love. And so what do we see here? What are the protection of God's wings pictured as here? Well, it uses the word refuge. And I love that. You know, I think I think it's Psalm 46 about, you know, the Lord is my refuge. I love that protective provision cared for. Yeah, and the picture of his love, which is cool. Then we see this phrase in Deuteronomy 32, the apple of the eye. So this is a phrase that's used to describe like looking on someone with favor or keeping an eye on them, but in a positive way, not the like, well, maybe it's both ways, right? Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's, I think they might get in trouble. So I might need to keep an eye on them too. But a Psalm that builds on that theme is Psalm 17 verse eight. Could someone read that one for Mm -hmm. us? Guard me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Yeah, so we see those two ideas together, the guarding and God is this motherly bird figure (laughs) that is hiding us in the shadow of his wings. Well, and it's interesting that in that voice there, it is the psalmist calling God an eagle, not God calling himself. So people had caught on, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you know, for those of us who did have a good relationship with our mom, I remember I went to my mom for comfort. Mm-hmm. When I was hurt, I, in a way that I didn't go to my dad. Mm-hmm. And so I think really the Lord is reaching down into our own experience mm-hmm. where we naturally go for comfort. Well, the reality is that, you know, if you're a child and you run to your mom, you know, her arms come over you like wings mm. ah. and she holds you close to herself. I mean, I have a seven year old grandson still and he fits right in here. You know? So <laughs> it's a beautiful experience that we do eventually grow out of, but it's very real. And I feel like to that point too, God is using and his people are using every possible metaphor and description or whatever that they can come up with to try to describe how loving and caring Mm -hmm. that God really is. Another one that shows up is that God will guide. And so this eagle is guiding their young. Another one, God blessed him with abundance. And a beautiful picture of that is Psalm 63, verses 7 through 8. Mart, would you grab that one for us? All right. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. So what we see here that we haven't seen in the other passages is joy and singing with joy and God's presence as this motherly eagle or bird figure is a place of joy, a place of abundance and blessing, which is just another beautiful picture of God and fits really well with what we described in our last conversation of a God who dandles us, Mm. which is to bounce up and down with affection and joy and God getting joy from us as we receive joy in the presence of God. Yeah, I cling to you. Those words are so warm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think all of this does a great job of picturing what we were just describing a minute ago, that God himself is coming down to our level and trying everything he can to describe how much that he loves us. And Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and the different psalmists that have written different psalms have picked up on this and are continuing to emphasize this presence of God that is very motherly 
is how they're describing it. And what they mean by that is we have a God who shields and guards us, a God who cares for us, a God who looks on us with favor and regard, a God who describes himself as one who guides us, a God who blesses us with joy and abundance and who receives joy and abundance from us, and ultimately a God of hesed, a God who covers us with his motherly eagle-like wings to protect us and show us his love. Have any of you raised chickens before? And if so, was it a pleasant experience or not? (laughs) That is such a random question, Daniel. I mean, no. (laughs) (laughs) I've eaten chicken and it was a very pleasant experience. (laughs) I can tell you that much. I've been called a chicken. Mm. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) There we go. My cousins live next door and they had a chicken coop and they raised chickens. Okay. Okay. I remember that dirty chicken coop. (laughs) we've raised chickens quite a few times i grew up raising chickens and then we've had them with my kids a couple times and you may have heard the term broody before as it relates to a chicken b-r-o-o-d-y broody Ah. yeah and unless you've actually dealt with a broody chicken you might not understand what that means a broody hen is one who wants to incubate her eggs. So she stays sitting on them after she lays them and she won't get off. And so when you go in to try to collect the eggs, she will nip at you. She will make noises at you that let you know you're not welcome (laughs) and will protect those eggs. And then once baby chicks are born, this broodiness can actually become a pretty aggressive, sometimes violent protection of her chicks. She can puff herself up, make herself look bigger. She'll even protect herself against bigger wild animals or bigger animals like a dog or something like that. In fact, Bill, your homework after this conversation is to look up the YouTube videos of hens protecting (laughs) their chicks. Let me write that down. (laughs) That's right. But you'll actually, you could see videos of hens protecting their chicks against sheep or a king cobra or people. So this hen, like she's going to protect her babies. Now, interestingly, we're in this series talking about the mother side of God. And today we're going to focus on a passage where Jesus actually calls himself like a mother chicken. (laughs) And so that's why I was trying to talk through some of that context of chickens first is because what, what does Jesus mean when he says this? And for those of us who need a Bible reference to see this, Luke 13, verse 34, if somebody will read that for us, and then we can talk about the context together. Okay. How often I've desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Hmm. So pretty famous passage of Jesus describing his desire for his people. So what's going on in this passage? What's going on in Luke 13? Well, Luke 13 comes after the beginning of what scholars consider the main feature of the book of Luke, which is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which begins in Luke 9.51 and concludes with the triumphal entry in chapter 18. So this falls in the middle of that. And I've heard scholars say that Luke is not all that interested in chronological order. 
he puts things where he wants them because they're helping him tell the story the way he wants to. And that would explain a little bit why he's putting this particular thing in that journey to Jerusalem, because that's what he's going to Jerusalem to do, to create that kind of safe space by what he does on the cross and the resurrection. Yeah, in fact, it's really interesting when you look at how Luke is broken apart with the narrative structure of the book, because the book starts off with a lot of details of places and specific movements and people and kind of a narrative. And then we have this big chunk in the middle that's a lot of teaching. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, when we get to the passion in Jerusalem, it goes back to narrative and details of places and people and stuff like that. And it's in this middle section that we Mm -hmm. find chapter 13. And you're right, Bill, it begins with When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's kind of what cues us to we're in a different section of the book of Luke. And oftentimes when I see something like that, I automatically hear like dramatic music in my head, right? Like in a movie, (laughs) this is when the strings come in and we get a little bit of bass and all of a sudden we're moving toward a new part in the story. What's interesting is this middle section of teaching in the book of Luke, one of the primary focuses of all of this teaching is to describe Jesus as the way of salvation. And Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, actually ends up describing the people who follow Jesus as the way later. And this really gets momentum here in the middle of Luke, where he begins to describe Jesus as the way of salvation. So he senses their danger right? Yeah. Far more than they do. Yep. And in chapter 13 in particular is the very middle section of the middle section of Luke. So this is kind of like the climactic moment of teaching where Jesus is describing why he's there, what he's doing, and the fact that exactly what you're talking about, Mark, it's a dangerous thing. This is not going to go the way that they expect. Because as we continue to look at the mother side of God, you know, here's Mm -hmm. Jesus describing himself as a broody hen. You know, he would love to take his people under his wings and protect them, to incubate them, to hatch them into the fullness of life he came to provide, this long metaphor. And I'm really struck by that, Daniel, because he says, but you were not willing. And if we think about this metaphor of God being like a mother hen, I think I'm so often the chick that's, or the egg, that's, you know, rolling (laughs) away, you know, from his provision. And just for a second, let me take that a little bit further, because we talked in our previous conversation about the mother bird, you know, wanting Mm -hmm. to gather and, and the young who come to their mother to be gathered. But just think about our own human development, you know, from the time we're a baby up to about what age 13, (laughs) it's okay to be gathered up in your mother's arms. But after that, you're not gatherable. Hmm. You know, we pull away from that protective maternal paternal embrace, because Hmm. it's like weird. And I just think it's so uh, telling of our humanness Hmm. that we pull back from that still. Hmm. Yeah, that phrase, you were not willing, is pretty haunting in this passage. Hmm. And it kind of pulls off of a thread that shows up a couple times, even just in chapter 13 itself, where Jesus is describing the true and the not true descendants of Abraham or people of Israel. And he describes them as the true and false children of Abraham. And If you remember our conversations on Isaiah and how God is revealing himself in motherly terms, in those passages too, we saw people that were not living 
mm-hmm. up to what God had called them to. So he mm-hmm. had called them to be people of justice. He had called them to be people of peace. And oftentimes they were exploiting the poor or not caring for the most vulnerable, just like we struggle with those same things, right? And so mm-hmm. we see that here as well. And it's interesting, we have that phrase, you are not willing. So it's like the invitation's there, but we're not following the invitation mm-hmm. that God's giving us. The other thing that's interesting too in chapter 13 is the way that the chapter begins because it describes two disasters that have happened in Israel, one that could be natural and then one that is evil that was perpetrated on Israel. So if you look at chapter 13 verses 1 through 2, we see Pilate killing some Galileans and mixing their blood with sacrifices, which would be a very horrific thing for him to do, but it would also be a way for him to show control over the people. And then we see right after that in verses four through five, Jesus describing the Tower of Siloam falling and killing 18 people, which could have been a natural disaster, could have been a building fault, we don't know. And Jesus uses these disasters to draw attention to some of the false beliefs that show up in other places in the scriptures too. The first is the fact that suffering is for those who have done bad things. We tend to be people that when we see bad things happen to someone, we assume that they did something wrong or something like that. And Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that, no, that's not the case. This was just a bad thing that happened. But then also he's calling the people to turn from their self-destructive ways and to be saved or to be rescued. And that's really what we see in this passage. So if somebody could read again 1334, let's hear those words kind of with that context in mind. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Now, as we think about this, not only in the context of Luke 13, but in the context of our whole conversation so far about the way that God's revealing himself to us, what are some of the thoughts that come to mind as you think about what Jesus is saying here in relation to all that other context? Well, what hits me is that in our conversations about Isaiah, you had the hope being realized in the promised Messiah. And now you have the promised Messiah saying, I'm going to Jerusalem because that's where I'm going to be killed. So that when they are not willing to come to him, they're rejecting the great promise of hope that God had given them for generations. In this whole series of conversations, we have an illustration of how, what a good mother-like God we have. Mm. We've talked about the different ways we've experienced our own mothers, but God is a good mother, and his mother-like characteristics are good for us. And just as we have to undo some of our thinking about the father-like characteristics of our God, sometimes we have to undo our thinking about the mother-like characteristics mm-hmm. of our God. I stay convicted with why am I unwilling? You know, when he mm-hmm. goes to the sacrificial, heroic, nurturing, protective for me, why am I unwilling? He's opened his heart up to us in so many ways. And uh, even in describing himself, you know, in the fruit of the Spirit, 
there are issues of the heart that he mm -hmm. says he wants to draw us into himself and he wants himself to be seen through us in those terms. Mm -hmm. We've had conversations in the past about a passage that I think we all found to be tremendously comforting, and that's God's description of himself in Exodus 34, mm -hmm. where he describes himself with those terms of the heart that you're talking about, Mark. And I think it's a little unsettling to us because we're so used to hearing God characterized in terms of judgment and harshness, his holiness, righteousness, all those very hard attributes in a sense. But God himself describes himself to us in those soft attributes of mercy mm -hmm. and compassion and tenderness and kindness. Yeah. And I think where I really see that in this passage is just with the sense of longing that Jesus mm -hmm. emphasized. Mm -hmm. That's How good. I've desired yeah. Yeah. to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Mm -hmm. And the haunting question that sticks with me is, am I willing to be gathered by Jesus into this protective closeness with him under his wings? Mm -hmm. yeah, a helpful reminder that God truly wants to draw you and me close to him. That's what God is like, kind of like a broody mother chicken. Well, we're looking at some familiar and some not so familiar biblical metaphors to help us better understand the mother side of God. And we learned another new word there, didn't we? Broody. In addition to Daniel's new favorite word, dandel, that we learned earlier. Our vocabulary is really expanding, isn't it? Well, one more 12-and-a-half-minute segment left in this edition of the podcast, and in that part of the conversation, Daniel is going to take us to places where someone we may not expect displays some of these characteristics and, in a way, is imaging the mother side of God. But before we wrap up this study, let's peek ahead to who'll be at the table and what they'll be talking about in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, our friend Shalini Bennett joins the group to talk about spiritual formation and what it means and what it takes to grow up and mature as a follower of Christ. What do you think of when you hear the words, you need to grow up? <laughs> <laughs> I think in our culture very much, maturity is independence. Mm. <laughs> the ability to take responsibility for what you've done, to make your decisions mm -hmm. appropriately. And that's why it is so confusing to believers, because for believers, maturity is growing in dependence mm. on God. Mm -hmm. It's an episode that will challenge you and will give some practical ways to help you grow up and mature in your faith. Spiritual formation with our guest Shalini Bennett on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of this discussion about the mother side of God. So this week we've been discussing the mother side of God, which for me has just felt weird as I was doing the research for this, as I ran up against the passages that caused me to want to do the research for this. I'm so used to thinking of God as a father and with like masculine power terms for God, or at least what we've traditionally thought of as masculine power terms of God. 
that seeing these motherly characteristics of God has been surprising to me and maybe a little uncomfortable. Honestly, I've been left with the question sometimes of like, I don't even know how to interact with God when he is like that, comforting and Mm. kind and loving (laughs) and all that. But I'm just curious for you, what's kind of stood out to you as we've discussed these things this week? Well, let me just quickly respond there. It feels like home to me. Hmm. You know, for a couple of decades, I led a ministry to moms, to mothers. And so scriptures about mothers have always grabbed my attention. In fact, the verse Isaiah 41, 11 is about he tends his flock like a shepherd and gathers the young in his arm and gently guides those who have young. It's like this mothering, he helps the moms be moms kind of thing. But he says in Genesis that he created humankind in his image, male and female. He created them. We are his image bearers. So if he's comfortable enough to express himself in both genders, you know, maybe we can be comfortable enough to look at the attributes that he carries, the the mother-like attributes Mm. that he expresses of himself. He's really relating to us, isn't he? I mean, when you think of whether as a father, you'd have to say, well, whatever the best characteristics of a father could possibly be, you have to say, oh, that would be God, only much more. And whatever the yeah. best possible characteristics of a mother would be, the things that really endear us or cause us to think of her as heroic, God is that and so much more, infinitely more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as I've been listening and engaging in these conversations, I guess to me, what I would use to describe these conversations is they've been affirming Mm. Uh, they've been affirming in the sense that we talk about God's loyal, faithful love, the chesed love Mm -hmm. that he's described within the Old Testament. We talk about God's grace and his mercy. And I think those that are sometimes considered softer attributes of God are able to sing harmony with these conversations. Mm. Nice. And that's been affirming to me. You know, down through history, apparently a lot of theologians, philosophers, didn't think that God could possibly experience affection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, You know, affection, issues of the heart were not something that they thought God was capable of. Mm-hmm. And yet, Daniel, you're, you're showing how the scriptures indicate that he does, yes. however that works. Yeah. Old and New Testaments, yes, yeah. clear. And it's blurry where one ends and one begins, right? They're kind of yeah. just both together in who God is. And in the same way that culturally it can be blurry sometimes for us because some of us might hear some of these quote unquote softer characteristics of God and realize like, actually my dad represented that Mm -hmm. the best in my life. He was more of the peaceful presence, the loving, nurturing person for me. And then for some of us, that's our mom. And then for some of us, when Mm -hmm. we hear just mother or father, all we hear is pain because we had really rough relationships with both our parents or one of our parents or whatever. And so I think, Mart, what you just described a minute ago of like everything that could be the best qualities of a dad is in God and everything that could be the best qualities of a mom is in God means that those of us with father wounds or mother wounds or both wounds can come and find that God loves us and meets us in ways that are going to be very healing and freeing to us Mm -hmm. as our parent. For that matter, he also represents everything that's best about being a child or a brother or a sister. It's just amazing. Yeah, I think that what I'm hearing from Daniel, from you, and then Elisa is the need to embrace complexity Mm -hmm. because my tendency is to want to find 
the simplistic black and white with a hard line in between. <laughs> and what we're finding in these texts is that, that there's a complexity to our God that is beyond us. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. And yeah. I need to be able to be okay with that, whether I can fully explain it or not. Right. Yeah. And that understanding helps us with ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were saying, Daniel, you know, there are traditional masculine characteristics in women and traditional feminine characteristics in men. And they both belong. You know, women can be strong and women can be heroic and men can be soft and, mm. and nurturing. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see that in our passage today as we kind of turn from talking about God in motherly terms and see how Paul describes himself in motherly terms, kind of in setting up the way that we walk into the world as representatives of God. And what's funny is in this very chapter of Thessalonians, Paul describes himself as a mom and a dad <laughs> in the same passage. <laughs> and so go. that blurriness really comes out. I wonder where he got that, Daniel. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 7. And as someone's turning there, I just want to kind of acknowledge that for me, Paul has never come across as like the warmest person. Uh, <laughs> and maybe for some people, they've found that in Paul. Mm-hmm. But for me, he always seems so intense and focused and perhaps one of those get on the train with me or get out of my way kind of guys. <laughs> and maybe there's moments in the scriptures where we see that a little bit. But I think it's kind of surprising to hear him describe himself in motherly terms, too. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see here. So First Thessalonians 2, 5 through 7. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed. Nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or for others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children, So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to ask the obvious question, how does Paul describe himself and his people that have been doing this work together? Gentle, tenderly caring. Mm Mm-hmm. Like a nurse. Mm -hmm. Like a nursing mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting that that distinction's there. He wants to make it very clear. It's not just like a nurse because there's been times throughout antiquity and even in modern Mm -hmm. times where there's a nurse for a village or whatever and Mm -hmm. moms could take their child to that nurse. Paul very clearly said, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. Mm -hmm. So you are like my children. Now, it might be helpful just to think a little bit about what's going on in Thessalonica, even with this letter. This is one of the early places that Paul preaches to. After only a month of preaching, a lot of people respond, and so kind of a bigger church is formed pretty quickly. There's some persecution that breaks out because they hear people describing Jesus as king, and that goes counter to culture, which says Caesar is king. And so persecution breaks out. Paul and Silas have to leave quickly. And Paul later finds out from Timothy that the Thessalonians, whom Paul thought might have fallen away at this point because of how severe the persecution was, are not just surviving, but they're thriving. They're growing. They're caring for one another. And so he writes this letter to reconnect with them, to encourage them, to celebrate their faithfulness, challenge them to grow, to become more like Christ. And then he uses both mother imagery and father imagery to talk about himself in relation to those people. 
And he kind of describes what motherly approach looks like, at least as he's using the metaphor here, which even before gentle, we see what? That he never came with what? With flattery or pretext or greed or... Yeah, he's talking about some of the motives that they came with. There wasn't a hidden agenda for money, no flattery. It wasn't so they get the praise or the credit. Immediately, I think of my mom when I hear that, right? Like so much of what she did for me and for my sisters had no praise or credit or money (laughs) involved in anything. (laughs) It was her giving us money. (laughs) Yeah, right. True love is honest. Mm -hmm. You know, when we flatter or when we do things with other motives, we're not thinking of the best interests of the other party. Mm -hmm. But there's an, an honesty, a realness here that comes through. And it shows, I think it reflects the heart of God Mm -hmm. in Paul's heart. And I think too, Mark, if I could add to that, I think it's really interesting that because he had been there for an extended period of time, he's able to say these things knowing that if he was different from that, they could call him on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he's actually reminding them of things that they would have to say, you know, he really was like that with us, which to Daniel's earlier point, I think is a little surprising to us that he would have been that way. That's so good, Bill. That's the last part of that section in verse 7. He shared not only the gospel, but our very lives, ourselves. Remember, this is the Paul, though, that wrote, love is patient, love is yeah. kind. That's you true. Know, and that yeah. wonderful description of you know what it really means to care about other people. In fact, in Galatians 4.19, Paul described himself in motherly terms there as well. And he talks about really hard things in Galatians, like he's being pretty tough with them. Mm. And he says, my little children for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And then goes on to say, that's why I'm talking in such harsh terms and hard terms with you. Mm. (laughs) And so you're right. Love is patient and kind, but it also has a very real truth edge to it that Paul represents Mm. often as well. But I think what I also see in this too is just how, okay, so God is like a mother. So he nurses us, he feeds us, cares for us. He he carries us, protects us. He dandles us, bounces us up on his knee uh, with affection and joy toward us. And then we see Paul who represents what Christian mission in the world looks like and being a representative of God looks like. And Paul takes on some of those same characteristics And so for me, it seems challenging because it feels like that means that for us, as we think about how we Mm -hmm. go into the world, we also are supposed to represent this motherly side of God. What thoughts do you have as you think about that? Well, 1 Thessalonians is a book that I've preached through several times at churches that are in transition between pastors. Mm -hmm. And when we get to 1 Thessalonians 2, it's always a surprise to people to think that a pastor should have those characteristics of gentle mm-hmm. and caring and all those mm-hmm. things. So to me, I just think it's a very timely word that can benefit not only churches who are in search of pastors, but even those who are engaged in ministry to make sure that they're conveying those characteristics as well as the strong preaching and teaching or whatever it might be. And I guess what I'm thinking is uh, these kinds of understandings of scripture legitimize a woman's offering as a mother in a different way you know we can dismiss our mothering you know whatever it's behind the scenes it's quiet etc like you were saying daniel and as god describes himself in mother-like terms 
it legitimizes and even honors our contributions as mothers. listening to the Discover the Word podcast and the conclusion of our look in this episode at the mother side of God. And I hope these conversations have challenged and encouraged you to gain a more complete understanding of who God is. It's pretty common for Christians to think of God as their heavenly father, with good reason. That's a common image used for God in scripture. But in doing so, we sometimes miss the motherly aspects of God's wonderful and complex character. So Marte Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day have been your study partners for these conversations. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we walk with you through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, as we close this edition of the podcast, I'd like to remind you that it's the generous, voluntary giving of our listening friends like you that makes Discover the Word and all of the Our Daily Bread Ministries resources possible. Our digital and print resources reach people in over 150 different countries. And so when you give, you're helping us make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. You can partner with us in this important mission by giving online at discovertheword.org. Click the Donate tab, and then we'll walk you through some options and how you can give right there. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.